Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 with me. And let's look at some of that potter's hand on the clay this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. So it'll be Acts chapter 4. We'll start in that 32nd verse. Once you found Acts chapter 4, verse number 32, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, if you'll stand with me, it reads like this. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of their things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the things of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they were distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Father, this morning, we have truly been blessed through our time of praising you and our, our fellowship together and singing, Father, from the message that you brought to us in song just a few seconds ago to, Father, just the fellowship we have in the unity of the body of Christ here at Morse Creek. Today, Father, I ask this of you. Let our hearts and minds be tuned to your word this morning. You use me as an instrument in your hand to speak your word, Father, first to my heart, then to the hearts of those that are gathered here, that we may leave this place very different than we came in. And Father, you do that today for your glory. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the first part of this chapter, we've seen how the gospel of Jesus Christ had led to persecution in the lives of, of Peter and John. How Peter and John had preached the gospel in that portico of Solomon. How the ones who had heard the message could not deny. They absolutely could not deny the power of God because it stood before them in the form of a man who had been lame and now was healed. They had been been convicted they had been convicted for the murder of Jesus Christ which was this Messiah that they rejected they had seen how the same power that had healed the lame man was the same power that had raised this Jesus from the dead how the long-awaited Messiah was in fact this Jesus Christ God's only begotten son they had heard this message preached and it said this message had been effective because there had been some 5,000 men who had come to believe in Jesus Christ and the risen power in the life of Jesus Christ. What an amazing story. But this caused some problems in the religious community as we looked at the Sanhedrin. They brought Peter and John and the lame man. They arrested them. They brought them into their, their court. And they, they stood them in the court and they said, Hey, by what authority and on whose name can you preach this message? Who gives you the authority and by what name can you do this? And, and that gave the opportunity for Peter to stand in their midst and preach the gospel to the court of the Sanhedrin. And they too were convicted. He didn't hold back. The message never changed. He looked them in the eye and said, This Jesus is the Messiah and you gentlemen are responsible for the murder of your Messiah. What an awesome message. 
they gathered together and said, what are we going to do with these guys? There are a whole bunch of people who believe if we do too much, we're going to get a riot. What is it that we can do to stop this in its tracks? And they brought them back in and they said this to them, no longer, no longer can you speak the name of Jesus. Don't speak that name. <laughs> Remember the question that Peter asked them. He said, you're a court. You're the guys that sit in judgment. Let me ask you. Why don't you judge on something for me? Should we obey men or should we obey God? That's an awesome question for the church today now, isn't it? <laughs> he said, should we obey you or should we obey God? They immediately left the Sanhedrin, if you remember. They gathered with the fellowship of the church, those that had been saved. They spent time in prayer to God. They spent time in praising God. And they asked God one thing. Not that the persecution be removed, but that they have boldness to do the thing that they had been called to do, which was speak the name of Jesus in the face of that persecution. <laughs> what an awesome prayer. We need to ask God for boldness. In speaking the name of Jesus Christ. We need to be bold in that message. Not offensive in the message, but bold in the message. Let the message be the offense, not the messenger. For just as they said in verse 12 of this same chapter, it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What is the importance of preaching the name of Jesus? What is the importance of speaking the name of Jesus? There is no other way. There is no other way to be in right relationship with God other than through this man named Jesus. They realize what we realize today that there's, there's no hope for salvation short of this Jesus Christ. There's not enough good works. There's not enough social justice. There's not enough conformity. There's not enough religious activity. There's only one way to a right relationship with God. And he has a name. And his name is Jesus. And as the church gathered and prayed and committed themselves to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word tells us that God shook the assembly. God shook the assembly, it says in verse 31. God's presence was felt, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit to go out and accomplish, go out and accomplish what God had laid on their hearts to do, and that was to speak the name of Jesus, to spread the gospel to a lost and dying world. And it says in verse 31, they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's what leads us into this passage that we read today. The church was in agreement about what had just happened. They were in agreement about what had happened with Christ. They were in agreement about the persecution that had happened to Peter and John, the leaders of the church that had been persecuted. They'd been attacked. And they understood that even though man had been the ones who had perpetrated this persecution, that the attack had come from Satan. The attack was from Satan. Satan didn't like what was going on. The church was being strengthened. It was holding to the fact that this risen Jesus was the Messiah. And they were just praising his name and proclaiming his name to all that this Jesus that you hung on a cross, that you killed, God raised him from the dead and he is alive. And they preached this gospel message. And Satan took the opportunity in the midst of the preaching of the gospel and the saving of lives to attack. <laughs> and the church knew that an attack on one part of the body was an attack on the whole body. 
And they had joined together. They had joined together, it says, to exhort those in their midst, to exhort, to uplift, and to unite around the gospel. And Satan soon found out what we learn in these verses. Persecution should lead the church to unity. Persecution should lead the church to unity. Let's look at three ways that, that's told in this passage of how persecution led this church to unity. And let's use that as an example of how we, in this world of persecution against Christians, should be unified. Should be unified. First, they were unified in the spirit, it says. In verse 32, it says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Notice who made up the church. <laughs> It wasn't the ones who had walked the aisle and put their name on a roll. It wasn't the one whose moms and dads had been a part of the church. This was the first church ever. Who was it that made up those that were part of this church? Therefore, the universal church of Christ, it is those who believed. So the question is, what is it that they believed? What is it that they believed? They believed that Jesus was God's son. He was this Messiah that was sent. They believed that their choices, their choices led to the death of, of Christ because they had sinned against God, that the Messiah that they had long awaited for was this Jesus. And they believed that they were responsible. They were responsible for his death. You know, as a side note, sometimes we don't see ourselves as responsible. Sometimes we want others to be responsible. We want to lay the blame on those Roman guards and those, those centurions and all those. We want to lay the blame at their feet, but their feet would have never walked the path if it wasn't for your sin and mine. You see, Jesus didn't come to be killed by the Roman guard. He came to die because you sinned and I sinned. You see, they realized that they were responsible. They believed that he had come to save them and to be the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. See, they had been in the sacrificial system that was repeated yearly for the uh, atonement of their sin. And they recognized the fact that this Jesus was the last sacrifice that was ever needed. They understood that he was the ultimate sacrifice for, for their sins. And they believed that the proof of all this, that the proof of all this wasn't the fact that he walked the earth perfectly without sin. It wasn't the fact that he healed people. It wasn't the fact that, that he made a lunch for everybody out of a little sack of food. It wasn't the fact that he calmed the still waters. It was not even the fact that he hung upon a cross and died. They believe the proof that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and will do what he said he did and it accomplished exactly what God had said was the fact that he was alive. The fact that he was raised from the dead. The fact you could walk into the tomb where his body had laid and now it was gone. You see, the message they preached was unlike any other message. You want to follow Muhammad? Go to his grave and see the bones. You want to follow Buddha? Go look at his body in the grave. You want to follow Jesus? He's right here with you. He's alive. This Jesus is not dead. He is not buried somewhere in a tomb. This Jesus is alive. And what is it that we must believe to be a part of the body of Christ? The church. You see, we have to believe the exact same things. The gospel message has never changed. 
The gospel message doesn't change with generations. It doesn't change with people's rights. It doesn't change with governments. It doesn't change with any of that. We must believe that God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son to die upon a cross that we might have everlasting life. We must believe that we all have sinned against a holy God and that that sin, the wages of that sin is death. Eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But, (laughs) but... We must also understand that God loves us and the gift of God is eternal life. Even though we have chosen to sin against God, He gives the gift of eternal life. And how do we know that? Because God demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on a cross for our sins. There was nothing within us that caused Him to crawl on the cross because we were so good. There wasn't anything that we could do to pay for him to get up on the cross. He got up on the cross because God so loved you. You see, and it says that if we will confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and will believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. See, there's only one entrance door into the body of Christ, the church. And that entrance door... Is Jesus Christ. That gospel message has never changed. And salvation and by an entry into the body of Christ has never changed. That's how they can be, it says, of one heart and one soul. One heart and one soul. For the early church, there was no question of what it meant to be saved. There was no dispute about what it meant to be saved. And all those who believed in Jesus Christ were a part of that church. It was no matter their economic status. It was no matter what town they came from. It was no matter the race or ethnicity. It was no matter the religious background that they had had. If you believe that you sinned against God, and that He sent His Son to pay the penalty for that sin, and that God has raised Him from the dead, and that He is your Lord and your Savior, it says you are saved, and therefore you are a member of the church, the body of Christ. Nowhere in the gospel does it speak of what you bring to the table other than your sin. Everything else is about what God brings to the table. His Son, Jesus Christ. And see, if you believe that, If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, if He's forgiven you and you're a part of the body of Christ, you are of one heart and one soul with the body because we're all of one spirit. I love what was written in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4. When he writes in Ephesians chapter 4 about this unity, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, why there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, And in you all. 
You see, what he wrote to that church was that there is only one way to be saved. Therefore, we should be unified in that spirit that now fills us. And they were unified. The beginning church was unified in the spirit. And that's the message for the church today. No matter our different preferences. I understand there are different preferences. The temperature of the building, the music that we sing, the, the message that is brought, the, the style of our worship, the times that we, we meet together, the, the programs that we have, the, the people we choose to invite into our, our worship services, and the list goes on and on. I've often heard it said, put five Baptists in a room and you got 25 opinions. <laughs> and it's true. We all have an opinion, a, a preference about worship. I have a preference about worship. And I'm not saying that preferences don't matter. I understand that each of us is more comfortable when things go closer or, or, or react closer to the preferences that we had in worship. I get that. I get that. And, and the message to the church is this. We need to make sure we're reaching people, not, not repelling people. But, but we must do it. It's the way, the way God says that we must do it. What, what difference does it make if... We have all our preferences, and the gospel message has no place. What difference would this make? What if we change the music? What if we change the order of service? What if we shorten the message? What if we change the times that we meet? Or What if we have more things for the children, the young people, the older people, the married couples? What, what if we spend all of our time making it comfortable... Will there be a place for the gospel at the end of the day? You see, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's, it's not about whether or not my preferences have been met, whether or not I can check off the, the, the list on Sunday morning of the things I, I enjoyed about the service today. At the end of the day, that's ultimately not, not the question at all. Ultimately, at the end of the day, Jesus won't ask me, how well did you like Sunday morning service? know what Jesus is going to judge me on is my service. Not how well I liked the service. See, the bar isn't how comfortable I am. It's what have I done for Jesus. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and I am judged not on my sin, but what did I do in this body for Christ, he won't be looking at a preference list of mine. No, he will be looking at my faithfulness. Have I been faithful to do what he's called me to do? Have I been faithful with what he has given me? Have I been faithful with the gospel? Have I been faithful with the gospel? And I don't know about you, but when I see Jesus face to face like we sang about earlier, when I see him face to face, there is one thing I most definitely want to hear him say. And it is well done, my good and faithful servant. If those words don't come out of his mouth, I have failed him in the body of Christ. The church was in unity in the spirit. The second thing it was in unity with is they were uni in unity in their possessions. Boy, this is the place where the pastor gets in trouble. They were in unity of their possessions. Look at the last half of that 32nd verse. It says, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he 
possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. We talked about this last week very briefly. Let me just give you some further insight. Remember, remember who it is that is gathered there in Jerusalem. They had come into town for the Passover feast. They had come for the Passover feast. Along with that Passover feast were many other feasts, and it lasted a little while. It lasted a little while. People had come from all the surrounding areas, as was was their custom, to do that in this this town of Jerusalem. They would say the city would swell 10, 20, 100 times in population during this particular time frame. Many of these people were far from home, and more than likely they had not returned. And now they find themselves in a town that is not theirs. The only thing they had were the possessions that they had brought with them. And now they have become believers in Jesus Christ. And they're at a crossroad. See, here's where the problem lies for them. Where are they to go? What are they to do next? The only church that exists is in Jerusalem. There is no other church to go to. You see, if they go home, they're going to face the ridicule and being outcast because they've left this Jewish faith and they believe in this Jesus as the Messiah. And they don't want to leave. They don't want to leave. They want to be in the body. So what would God have the church do in this circumstance? It says they considered everything they possessed as being owned by someone else. Who was the someone else? God. See, they understood that God had given, therefore God owned everything. And it is God who gives us all things to enjoy. Remember what's written in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. When in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that 17th verse, it says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. It is God. It is God who is the giver of all things and he gives it richly. I believe we all could say amen to that. We have a place that we can sit that's air conditioned. We have clothes that we can put on to look pretty today to come. Most of you, if not all of you, rode here in a car today. There wasn't a single person on foot or riding horseback to get here. You're going to leave this place today and you're probably going to go somewhere, most of you, and have somebody bring food to your table and you're going to sit down and eat. If not, you're going to go home and chances are you're going to have food enough, food more than enough because God has blessed you. And he does that, that he might use it and us for his glory. The early church recognized, that early church recognized that there were those in need in the fellowship. It didn't take long for them to put the pieces together and say there are many that are here that came with nothing but what they had on their back. It's been weeks now and there are those that are in need. They recognized that God had blessed them immensely so they considered all that they had to be open to anyone that was in need. How different does that sound? than the thoughts of the world today. (laughs) You see, it's amazing to think the stuff that people have today and stuff that they never use. You know, there's an entire industry that's developed, growing very rapidly in Wilmington, as a matter of fact, called the storage unit industry. Not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have a storage unit, but I want you to think about something for a moment. Nothing against storage units. I think they're good. Very applicable 
if I keep it up at my house and grandkids keep coming and they keep getting stuff, I'm going to need a storage unit. Not for the grandkids stuff. Don't anybody tell Wendy I said that. It'll be my stuff that goes first. Understand that. But have you ever thought about, if you have a storage unit, when's the last time you were in it? When's the last time you took anything out of it? You know, we are so hung up on the things that we have that we'll pay somebody else to watch them just in case we ever want to see them again. Amen? What sense? What sense does that make? And how much different would the world be today if we saw the stuff that we have as something we could bless somebody with in God's name? How much different would this world be? Unfortunately, the idea of building bigger barns has also been a problem in the church. It's not just a secular problem. It's a church problem. We get and we get and we build bigger barns to store it. God keeps giving. We keep building barns. We continue to ask God to bless us. We fall on our face before God and say, God, bless us. And I believe God's willing. Don't get me wrong. I believe God's more than willing to bless you because he says he will in his word. But we come to him with hands so full from what he's already blessed us with that we can't carry off what he's trying to give us now. How much different would it look if the church came empty-handed because they used everything that God had already blessed them with and said, God, bless us now. We could carry away immense amounts of things to go and bless him and the ones he intends to be blessed with. How would it look if we were so faithful in our walk with God that we trusted him with every penny, not just the excess? You see, we stand in the pulpit and we say, we trust God with everything, and then we make sure there's enough in the bank account that if you don't give on Sunday morning, we can cover the expenses for the next month. There's a word for that. Hypocrite, and I'll move on now that I'm in trouble. See, they had unity in the spirit. They had unity in possessions. And third, they had unity in the word. Look at verse 33. It says, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them. It says they became a witness. You know what happens when you're unified in the spirit and you're unified in all things? You spend less time trying to make a plan and figure out who's going to pay for it. You spend more time telling people about Jesus. What an awesome idea. That sounds like what? The church. You spend less time trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong and how we're going to pay for whatever the program is. You're out there telling somebody headed to hell that there's a Jesus. You see, they were unified around this gospel. It's time that the body of Christ uses what God has blessed us with, both physically and spiritually, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to tell the gospel message just as Jesus intended the gospel message. We need to tell it in such a way they are convicted of their sin. We need to tell them that there needs to be repentance because He is holy and we are not. We need to tell them in such a way that that gospel message changes their heart which affects their actions. You know when it says in the Bible that repentance, that change starts in the house of God. Until God's people are right with God, there'll be no change in this world. There will be no change in this world. There needs to be a church that is so in love with Jesus that it can't be quiet. Think about it a minute. 
The Sanhedrin were trying to get Peter and John to do what? Be quiet. You know what God's trying to get the church to do today? Speak. We've got the be quiet down pat really well. What he wants us to go do is speak. To start talking about this Jesus. To tell the story that has changed our life forever. We need less talk about money. And we need more talk about the master. We need less talk about the government. And we need to talk more about the gospel. We need less talk about what we want. And we need to have more talk about our witness. We need less talk about our religion and more talk about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when it comes, and when we can witness what the first church witnessed, when we can do what the first church did, we'll have what it says about them at the end of verse 33, when it says, And great grace was upon them all. God's unmerited favor flowed over the church. And that unfair merited favor just strengthened that church into one unified body for the glory of God in spreading the gospel. Very quickly, look at the example that's given us. Starts in verse 36. It tells you about this unification in the spirit. It tells you about unification in possessions. It talks about the unification of the word. Then it says, let me give you an example. And he says there in verse 36, it says, and Joseph, some of your translations may say Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles. A very interesting name. I don't know how many of you knew that this Barnabas you read about on through Acts and later on had a name other than Barnabas. It was Joseph or Joseph. This Barnabas was a nickname that was given to him. And what was the nickname? What did it mean? Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. How how did he come to be known as son of encouragement? We'll understand that in just a second. It says that he was a son of encouragement. It tells us he was a Levite, and he was from the country of Cyprus. Levite. That should ring a bell with you. There was a priestly group called the Levites. Very religious, if you remember. Gives you an idea of this Joseph, Joseph's background. Very religious. He was from Cyprus. It was the third largest island in the Mediterranean. In a wealthy place. It was also home to a lot of Jews. A lot of Jews. So we know he was Jewish. He was of the Levite priestly religious background. He lived in a, a well-off place. So we know those things about him. But we also know something else. It says in verse 37, Having land, he sold it. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The greatest thing about this Joseph, Barnabas, is not that he was a Levite. Not that he was from the Jewish background. Not that he was from Cyprus, a wealthy place. The greatest thing about this Joseph, Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas, is that he was an encourager. How was he an encourager? He was willing to be all in. He was willing to be all in in God's plan. He saw those in need. He recognized the fact that he had been blessed immensely, that this Jesus had completely changed his life, and he was all in. That reminds me of what Jesus said back in Luke, back in Luke chapter 9. He says, if you want to be my disciple, let me tell you what it's going to cost you. In Luke 9, verse 57, it says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, 
I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus turned to them. You remember what he said? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, he looked another in the eye, and he says, follow me. And that person said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Sounds kind of cold. But Jesus looks at him and says, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Another looked at him and said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He says, you're either all in or you're all out. There is no in-between. Let the world take care of the worldly things. You should focus on what? The kingdom of God and the preaching of that gospel message. He reiterated that over in the 14th chapter. In the 14th chapter. At the end when he says this, Now great multitudes, in verse 25 of Luke 14, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, This multitude is gathered. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first, count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation, he is not able to finish. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying... <laughs> This man began to build. He was not able to finish. He says, or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He ends by saying this, an interesting tie into something he said earlier about what you are as a Christian in this world. He says salt is good. Salt is good. Has many uses. He says, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how's it going to be seasoned? <laughs> he says it's neither fit for the land or for the dung hill. But men throw it out. He says he who hears he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, he tells you that being a disciple of his is not easy. Being a disciple of his is not because of cheap grace. See, it costs God his only begotten son in order for you to come to know him as your Lord and Savior and have a right relationship with God. Guess what it costs you to be a disciple? Everything. If there is anything this morning you're holding back, Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple. He even says, you are to give it all. If all in John 3.16 means every one of you have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved, I believe all, when Jesus says you must give it all to be his disciple, it's the same meaning. If you believe Jesus died on a cross for your sins, you must also believe 
that everything you have is his. John 15, 20 tells us, Remember the word that I said unto you, A servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Why do I tell you that? Because if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 10, I believe it is, he says, Blessed are they who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and they persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. He says, rejoice, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, it's not if you will be persecuted, it's when. It's not what it's going to cost you, it's everything. And you see, it, it seems like that time is drawing quickly near. Both that we should use everything and spend everything the glory of God, as well as suffer the persecution. We understand that time is at hand. We see it all around us. And when persecution comes from without, as it did in this case, we need to be unified as the body of Christ. Unified in the spirit that fills each of us. The spirit that raised, God from, raised Christ from the dead. That spirit that fills each of us because we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We need to be unified in our possessions. That we don't need a welfare system. We need a church to step up to the plate. Let's just be the bottom line. We need a church to step up to the plate. Does that mean we just sell everything and we give it away? Absolutely not. You notice it said we, they gave to those who were in need. Also understand they laid it at the apostles' feet and let them make the decision on who was in need. But they said we, we need to look after our own. But most importantly, they were unified in the Word. They were unified in the Word. All the decisions that were made from those possessions that were given were filtered through God's Word and what He said do with it because it's only by doing it by God's Word that God's Word can be true that He will meet your every need. You act like the church is supposed to act according to the Word, not according to our preference. And God promises you will be a church that will impact the world. And that church should be a glory to God in the world. See, it tells us in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew or Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither a male or a female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. What our church needs today is to be unified. Unified in the Spirit, in our possessions, and in the Word of God. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.